It's 2011 and the Arab Spring is raging. A lesbian activist in Syria starts a blog. She names it Gay Girl in Damascus. Am I crazy? Maybe. As her profile grows, so does the danger. The object of the email was, please read this while sitting down. It's like a genie came out of the bottle and you can't put it back. Gay Girl Gone. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Wellness. 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 Vitamins and supplements. Ozempic and Wegovy. The detox diet. Sweat out the toxins. I eat more than bone broth and vegetables. I always like try and get a little bit of meditating in. Try out cryotherapy. Corporate wellness company. Any kind of skincare, any kind of self-care. But I take it almost regularly. No wonder your skin looks great. We have a new series here on The Current. It's called Well Founded. It is about the issue of wellness. You know that there's a huge amount of information coming at you about how to be healthy, what to eat, how to exercise, treatments that you could take, supplements, therapies. It is a lot. can make your head spin. So we're going to try to make sense of all of this, what works and what doesn't, and we'll examine what it means to be well, especially at a time when surviving, let alone thriving, is hard for so many of us. We're going to start this series in the workplace. Wellness doesn't come cheap, at least for Canadian companies. In 2022, it's estimated that corporations spend upwards of $3 billion on employee wellness programs. Now a new study is casting doubt on whether any of those corporate wellness programs actually do anything to help us, the employees. William Fleming is a research fellow at the Wellbeing Research Centre at the University of Oxford. William, hello. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. This is fascinating because of the amount of, as I say, conflicting advice that people are thrown at uh, every single day. What sort of motivation did you have? Why did you want to look into these wellness programs and whether they actually work or not? Uh, I think there were a couple of reasons why I wanted to really look into it. Um, The main one just being the accelerating uh, popularity of interest in wellness programs and well-being at work and also mental health and well-being outside of work there was just a especially in the UK over the last uh, decade um you know it's just been becoming more and more popular so that was the that was the main that was the main reason I was interested there's also a little bit of opportunity um I got access to a certain data set which let me a- um, ask specific research questions mm-hmm. and so it was a bit of a yeah, a combination of opportunity and really interested in the rise of uh, popular discourse in, in and out of workplaces around, uh, yeah, well-being. Hey, you're looking specifically at what are known as wellness interventions. What, what does that mean? I mean, what are some of the programs that specifically we'd be talking about here? Yeah, so I've been especially evaluating what we would call individual level mental well-being programs. So this means that they're really practices or programs that employers might offer that would seek change in individual workers' mindsets or their psychological capacities or their behaviors. So it's really trying to change something about the, the individual worker. Um, and so the yeah, there's lots of popular programs like this. And so the, the ones that I look at um, are uh, stress and resilience training, uh, mindfulness, time management training, relaxation classes. Uh, I'm sure these are the kinds of programs that many of your yeah, your listeners uh, participate in and their employers offer. Um, and it's these sort of popular programs that try and change something about individuals that I've been evaluating. And at the best case scenario, they are meant to make us feel better at work. Is that 
the point of these? Exactly. Exactly. So these programs are promoted as universally applicable so that everybody can get benefit from mm. participating in them. And so what did you find? Do they work? Uh, well, yeah, I think I wouldn't be here talking to you if the headline wasn't there. Uh, wasn't that um, I didn't find any evidence that they that they brought benefit for workers. Um, so I compare across uh, lots of different measures of mental well-being and mental health um, and found yeah, no difference between those who participated in these types of initiatives and those who didn't. Um, following some very statistical uh, steps along the way, obviously. No difference whatsoever. I mean, none yeah. of them had a positive effect on us? Uh, there is one exception, um, which which actually is a slightly different type of program, and that was um, employer-offered uh, volunteering opportunities. Mm. Um, and so this, can, this covers a vast array of practices. It might be pro bono work. It might be painting a community center. There are lots of different um, ideas. And this was the one uh, initiative that targeted the individual that seemed to have some indication of benefit for people's mental well-being. Huge amounts um, of money. And I think, well, huge amounts of money are spent on this. I mean, I said upwards of $3 billion in 2022. That's the, the latest uh, estimate that we have. How did you go about analyzing whether or not that money is well spent or not? Uh, so I analyzed it specifically on whether it made people's uh, mental health, whether that improved. I didn't I didn't look so much at the economic indicators. It was really about whether measures um, either scales of mental health, whether people's job satisfaction, their life satisfaction. So really thinking about these more psychological scales. Um, and that's where the improvement should that, you know, the the stated aim of these programs is that they're going to make us feel better at work. So I really thought that was the best way to evaluate these initiatives. Tell me more about, I mean, the, the headline is none had a positive effect, but tell me more about what you yeah. learned about the impact of, of those programs on us, the employee. Well, I think it's, I think it's really that these types of initiatives are not targeting the causes of our struggles at work. Um, that there are lots of factors which cause work stress, which people have to manage. There are various demands and expectations that people have to um, meet. And really, the I think the key argument I'm taking away is that these types of initiatives are not engaging with the problems. They're not engaging with the stressors, um, and that we have to get to those. Um, yeah, we've got to target that. We've got to target working conditions before we can just try and improve people's mental well-being in isolation. Is it not true that that some of this training, particularly around resilience and stress management, actually, it, it, it's not as though it, it didn't improve things. It actually made things worse for employees? Uh, yeah, there, I think on face value, there's some suggestion that be, that might be the case. I think it's more likely there's a little bit of remaining what we call selection bias. Mm. So perhaps the people who are more likely to participate in a stress or resilience training program um, already have slightly lower mental health. And I think that's that's more likely explaining that result. And I do my best to control for those sorts of biases and look at people who've previously suffered from work stress, especially over the last year. Um, so I've done lots of techniques to try and balance that by, I, I wouldn't argue that it's causing harm, but it's just not helping these people who have slightly lower mental health to begin with anyway. So you've said that if employers want to focus and drive uh, employee well-being, they need to look at and talk about and deal with work practices. What, what should the focus be instead? If, if companies want to have an effective wellness program, what do they need to target that toward? Well, yeah, as you said, I think it needs to be targeted at yeah, the core organizational practices, core working conditions, things like 
um, you know, your pay, your contracts, the amount of autonomy you've got over how you do your work and when you do your work and where you do your work. Um, and also, also things such as a performance review, which can be very stressful. Um, and also about trying to identify where are the big demands coming in? What are people not able to manage? What do people need more support with? Whether that's more staffing, whether that's more training, it should, I do believe it should really be about these, you know, the core tasks that people have to do at work and what's really expected of them. Just before I let you go, this is big business. As I mentioned, a lot of money goes toward those wellness initiatives. Have you had a knock on the door from any of the companies who are involved in this, uh, raising concerns about your research? Uh, I think I've been surprised by how supportive the wider um, academic uh, community and the wider um, industry has been. I, in the last few years, especially since the pandemic, there, there has been a, a growing awareness that a lot of what's being offered is not is not enough and mm. it's not really getting to the root causes. So I've actually been surprised by how supportive the response has been, um, which is good and shows that I think we're moving in the right direction and we can start to take um, employees well-being more seriously. William, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. William Fleming, research fellow at the Wellbeing Research Centre at the University of Oxford and the author of a new study in Industrial Relations Journal about corporate wellness programs. Our next guest helps companies be more effective when it comes to supporting employees' well-being. Shante Alec is the co-founder of Rework. It's an organization that helps people redefine their relationship to work and to wellness in the workplace. Shante, hello to you. Hi, it's nice to be here. It's It's nice to meet you. Great to have you on the program. You surprised by William Fleming's research showing that these huge programs, and I say huge because of the amount of money that's spent on them and the time that they take and the place that they take up in in workplaces, that they don't really seem to do much at all to help employee well-being? No, not at all. I'm a former employee who saw those types of programs not work for myself and some of my coworkers. So yeah, no, I'm not surprising at all. And I think there's been a lot of research lately sort of continuing to show the issues with those types of programs. What did you see personally that that led you to believe that perhaps what you were involved in was not going to help the bigger issue? Uh, So I worked at a large tech company before sort of branching out on my own. And uh, tech companies are famous for offering a lot of perks, including well-being perks. And the thing I saw most often was that it wasn't, they weren't things that people were taking advantage of, or not everyone was taking advantage of. So I know myself as a black woman, uh, I know other women of color who sort of hesitated because we are taught you're supposed to be focused on work at work and you go to work to work. Mm-hmm. And so take, sometimes taking advantage of some of those programs, there's like guilt involved, There's a level of privilege that some folks have and others don't. Um, I've talked about in the past the fact that, like, when I was a younger employee uh, and offered these types of things, there's this feeling that comes with sitting at your desk and watching all the more tenured folks be able to get up and leave their desk and go do things, but you have to sort of stay focused on work because you're working towards, you know, promotion or whatever it happens to be. So it's just, it's not set up to be equitable from the outset, much less... They help people. Why do you think they're there? I mean, the cynic might say that this is a way we offer these programs and the manager gets to check a box and say, look, see, see what we're giving you. You're working really hard, but we have these opportunities. You can go and do yoga at lunch. You can have a mindfulness uh, uh, intervention. Is, is, it a, is, is, it, is that fair to say that? Yeah, I think, to be honest, it, it, 
if you don't want to be cynical about it, you can say it's about employee retention. It's about trying to keep your employees happy. But to be honest, from my perspective and from what I've seen and the work we do with Rework, it's almost always about productivity. It's about offering things that, first of all, keep you at the office longer um, and also um, a healthy employee is a more productive employee. Mm. So there, there is sort of a quid pro quo or sort of um, there's an ROI on this for HR departments, I'm sure. Unfortunately, um, the sort of the interventions that they found are not ones that are, are going have been successful as this research has shown. As I mentioned in the introduction, your organization helps people redefine their relationship to work. You did this your own through your own life. Right? You, you took some time off. What happened when you did that? Yeah, so I burnt out pretty badly in 2021 after quitting my job. I quit my job to take a creative sabbatical and I think sort of years of overwork hit me hard at when I had the time to actually stop and look around. And and so I took a step back from work. I spent a lot of time actually doing research about burnout because I needed to heal from it and spent a few months just focused on learning about and and addressing my own burnout. And in that process, learned that there there's so much value in community and so much value in sharing um, this type of work and that the, the experience I had, my co-founder actually went on a similar journey, Natasha, um, a rest healing journey after leaving work as well. And we just saw the benefit of, of doing this in community and the support you get from people and decided to build rework to help other people sort of go through this process. We built an entire framework around what we learned through burning out and through healing from burnout. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that this is not something you can do by yourself. An individual approaches just don't work to solve a systemic problem. So how do, how do we create strategies that actually work? As you said, we live in this culture that normalizes and valorizes burnout and stress yeah. and overwork. So what are some strategies, specific things th- that you could employ in a company that would actually help those employees? So I think the biggest thing any organization can do is take it, take the burden off the individual and actually look at this as a systemic problem and then do the work of talking to your employees, engaging with your employees and understanding what actually is going to help them from a well-being perspective, from the perspective of going at it to, um, to help people figure out what is actually meaningful them for them in work. So the work that we do with rework with organizations is almost always about creating cultural change. It isn't about finding sort of these individualistic um, band-aid solutions. It's very much about we go through a framework of helping people understand burnout, leaning into rest, leveraging play and creativity to get to new ways of thinking. It's about changing the way you think about work, think, changing the way you think about how you engage with work. It's changing ideas of productivity. And all of these things are not easy. They're not sort of the thing you can sort of throw at your employees and say, good luck. It's, it takes engagement and, and listening to them and, and spending time. Like as Dr. Fleming said, like this is something that um, isn't going to be solved by at, at the individual level. This is something that takes systemic change. Do you think companies are interested in that? I mean, the last few years have been really difficult for companies when it comes to wellness. You have the pandemic, you have racial uh, reckonings, um, you have a state of of chaos in the world that stresses people out. Um, and, And companies can see that in their employees. Is your sense that they want to make those big strategic changes or 
do you understand the attraction of having, you know, that box that can be checked when we send somebody to a yoga class at lunchtime instead of changing the structural nature of where they work and how they work? Yeah, I, I think checking a box is always going to be easier, but I think we've also seen through things like the great resignation in 2021 and 2022 that the companies that are going to win are the ones that are actually making changes. They're making real structural changes, doing the hard work. Um, and I, I, I think like at the end of the day, it comes down to caring about your employees and, and spending the time it's going to take to make, to make the difference to make the, the shifts that are required to actually be effective. And the companies that are going to win are the ones that are are making these changes and attracting employees and keeping employees. Most of the people who reach out to us through Rework are folks who come to us because their teams are so burnt out they can't be effective, yeah. they can't be creative, they can't do the work they need to be doing. So there, there's sort of an imperative at, um, at play as well because of what's happened through the pandemic and the reckoning, and et cetera. This is really interesting and some good advice, I think, for leaders who are listening. Shantae, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Shantae Alec is the co-founder of Rework. It's an organization that helps people rethink their relationship to work and wellness in the workplace. Queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s was a great time, but it had a dark side. It was not a safe city for gay people back then. But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city? Somebody's killing gay men. We want to know why. I'm Francis Pourde, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. Jennifer Dimoff is an organizational psychologist, teaches at the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa, and has worked with many organizations to develop, deliver, and evaluate evidence-based solutions to workplace problems. She co-edited a book about how leaders can impact organizational safety and well-being. Jennifer, good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. How did companies get to a place where they're spending billions of dollars on wellness programs that, according to the study, don't actually work in help, terms of helping employees' wellness? <laughs> Well, first, I think we have to be careful not to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes, that the potential for wellness programs is that they, they do have the potential to work. But it is just like Shantae and Dr. Fleming were saying, that it is about the infrastructure and the system that needs to be in place. And I think, you know, certainly what we've seen in the last few years is a lot more recognition that wellness is important and that there is a relationship between wellness and performance and wellness and productivity. So that has an inherent return on investment associated with it. So that's really motivated organizations to invest in wellness programs to kind of get on the wellness bandwagon um, and maybe have a competitive edge against other organizations that they might be competing for for top talent. How have you seen it go sideways when people climb on that bandwagon, when they want to, to seem like they're doing well by their employees, but perhaps are missing the mark? I think it does become this scenario of just having the tick in the box and making sure that it looks good on paper. And that may not be the intention at all. And when I work with a lot of organizations that are interested in doing research and interested in 
understanding this systematic processes that are leading their wellness programs to fail, most of them at the table are saying, we really do want to make an impact. This isn't just about having a, you know, winning a best place to work award or having a, a box that needs to be ticked. So Often, you know, it's hard not to be cynical about the motivations of organizational leaders, but I think a lot of it just comes down to really the lack of understanding of fit, of what what the business leaders might think employees need and what they actually need are two different things. So really approaching the process like a like a scientist of understanding what are the needs in the first place? What's feasible? What's practical? Mm. Goal setting. And then devi- designing the intervention to actually fit those goals and needs. I mean, William Fleming said that if you are just addressing kind of what's on the outside of, of, of the workplace culture, you're not getting to the heart of it. He says you need to, if you want to improve employee well-being, address the work practices. So should companies abandon the money that is spent on wellness programs and put that money into things like better pay, more vacation time, would that help in a meaningful way with the well-being of employees? It would certainly be a step in the right direction, but I don't think there should be an abandonment of wellness strategies. And I think that that's the that's the really the word that's been missing in a lot of these conversations is it really is about strategies. And so should people be paid more fairly and compensated more, especially with economic conditions the way that they are? Yes, absolutely. Um, should people have more access to vacation time? Yes, absolutely. But what we do know from things like research on vacations and whether people are taking personal leave that they have access to is that if there isn't a culture to support that, then people aren't going to take their vacation time even if they have it. So there really does need to be that more infrastructural and cultural change mm-hmm. to support not just the program and the policies and the benefits that people have, but that also make them easy to use, accessible, and promoted. You've said that there's a difference between a climate at a workplace and a culture. Can you explain the the difference between the two? Yeah, at a very kind of high level, culture is who we are and climate is what we do. So culture is very different. Uh, nebulous. It's difficult to really measure, whereas climate is more observable. So this is, you know, like to use, you know, the the um, examples that Shantae was giving about, you know, more senior people being able to leave their desks while more junior people can't. So if that's what you're seeing, you're seeing a climate where there are power differentials, where there's hierarchy. And even if on paper there isn't, in real life there is. So climate Climate is what you tangibly see and experience as an employee. And that may be, you know, you see the wellness program information being advertised on the company intranet or in the workroom, but are people actually using it? Are people actually embracing that? And are their managers promoting it or are they rolling their eyes at it? So in the last couple of minutes that we have, what would you want to see when it comes to be being strategic, as you said, um, in in how workplaces think about wellness and how workplaces think about making sure their employees don't just feel like that those steps are being taken, but actually experience 
real change? What, what, what strategically do you want to see? I'd like to see that that organizations and leaders really start asking the questions of what do people need and what is going to work for whom and under what contextual circumstances. So really putting on that scientist hat and thinking about asking those questions of why are we doing this? Who is it going to help? And how do we know it's working? Actually measuring it as it's unfolding. Yes, exactly. That data, you know, we're in this data-driven world now. Use it. Lots of organizations have it. Use it. Involve an organizational psychologist or folks like those at Rework who can evaluate is your, are your programs actually working? Because one of the things with with Dr. Will, with Dr. Fleming's uh, study is that we have to be very careful about saying things do or don't work when we don't have a longitudinal evaluation over time. And um, that's that's measure, 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 measure is my uh, bottom line. Just before I let you go, just very briefly, is your sense that employers want to do that? That's hard work. It's easy. It's it's much more difficult than than putting a box out and checking that box and saying, "See, there's the program. We got it sorted out." <laughs> yes, absolutely, it is. Um, however, what we've seen, and I've done my own research on this, mm. and have published research on this, is that when organizations do invest in that infrastructure and that process, both time and budget, that's where you actually see return on investment. All right, we'll leave it there, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Dimoff is an organizational psychologist, associate professor at the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa. This segment was part of our new series on wellness called Well Funded, Founded, pardon me. We want to see it certainly well funded. Is it well founded, that work that's actually happening? We'd love to hear from you. In your workplace, what is your experience like with employee wellness programs, the good and the bad? Your company might have a lot of money spent on them, but do they actually work? We want to hear from you Email us, The Current, at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.